Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast, a weekly show about all things engineering, DIY projects, manufacturing, industry news, and weld destroyers. It's kind of, I don't I have no idea what that means, but that's what Steven's working on. So we're your hosts, electrical engineers, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 397. So first, we got an update about the 3D printer stuff, about my printer that's like pseudo catching fire. There's an update on the Chips Act for America, and then we will get to personal projects, the Weld Destroyer 3000 with Steven. Uh, I have a new multimeter we can talk about. So a couple weeks ago, I was looking for a new 3D printer and asked the community what I should get. Everyone basically is saying, get the Bamboo X1 Carbon. It's a really good uh, high-end, in quotes, consumer printer. It's definitely not a industrial printer. It's not for company or like high-end companies, that kind of stuff. But it should be plenty good enough for what we do at Macrofab and that kind of stuff. So I actually got one on order for Macrofab. And if it works out well, I will probably get one for my personal lab. But yeah, we'll see how it goes. I'm really excited to see how like the multi-change works because uh, how that software is handled. Because I have to kind of set up a new tool chain. I kind of want to see how I can make maybe Fusion do some of that tool chain. We'll have to see. I think Fusion's slicer is pretty out of date compared to what everyone else is using. But maybe there's like a way I can push it to like whatever slicer I choose like automatically. So it's not like I have to go drag files between all the pieces of software like I do now. You know, okay. I'm, I'm actually a little bit, I'm curious your thoughts on the bamboo lab. So you just mentioned that this is like high level hobby. Mm -hmm. If we take 3d printers as a spectrum, yeah, you've got the stuff you can buy on Amazon for less than a hundred bucks, and let's call that bottom of the barrel. Yeah, like the Ender threes. Yeah, yeah, and then it goes up to the higher level that's still like in your home, like this Bamboo Lab seems like it fits that kind of category. But like, what comes after that? Because there is after that for sure. Do, do you even know? And 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 at the same time, what I think is funny is, you know, I, I work now at an aerospace company the mechanical engineering team has a maker bot just sitting in there and that's what they use for all their stuff. Mm -hmm. So uh, in that scale, now, now they're not sending 3d printed parts out from a maker bot into space, but they're, they're mainly for, you know, form fit function kind of checks and things like that. And when we had a client come by to look at our product, we had 3d printed some stuff to be like, this is kind of what it will look like. But yeah, I'm, I'm curious. I don't know much about the scale above bamboo lab. Do you know much? Yeah, I mean, it's like all the um, industrial printers like HP makes. Like They have that HP Jet printer, mm. powder-based. Most of the FDMs in that space start becoming like large format printers where they can print really large and they have like actually heated chambers, that kind of stuff. Um, there, there was one here in Houston that a company makes. Are they? Okay, so. Ah, it's Re3D. Yeah, they sell, they're called like the Gigabots. They're like a really large format printer. Oh, those are gigantic. Yeah, they're like people sized almost. And they're they're from like 15K to looks like 100K, depending on what you option out. Sure. 
but they're built here in uh, Houston, which is really cool. Oh, that's neat. Yeah, I was talking to them, and uh, it'd be awesome to get one of those. And then they said it was like 15K. And I was like, well, I'm not quite there yet. <laughs> I was barely able to get the swing, you know, a $1,500 printer. Yeah. So. Okay. Uh, this is basically a a large format FDM 3D printer. Oh, yeah. That uses AD20 for the framing. Yes. Cool. Is anyone doing laser centering on a hobby scale, on like a home scale? I don't think so. I haven't seen anything. Yeah, because that would be really cool to be able to do because then you're talking about metals, right? Well, I mean, technically resin printers are centered laser-ish. I don't think so. I don't think they're actually doing the act of centering, are they? Well, it's called SLS, which is centering is in there, right? Y- yeah. Was that selected lithic? Let's see. No, selective laser centering, SLS. So it's actually using a laser to melt the material. Or, well, no, center. <laughs> yeah, I think they just call it that, though. Because actually, most of them use, like, LCD panels and a big UV, like, bulb inside. Really? Which is not a laser, but they still call it SLS. I thought they w- that a laser was actually scanning, like, rastering across the material and, and blasting it. That- like, the... Um, the same That's thing how is, they used to work. Oh. They used to be that way, but they found out just putting like a bare LCD panel in there and then just blasting UV light up and then just block with the panel where you don't want the UV to hit is way easier and faster. Yeah, that's resin printing, right? Yeah, but it used to be with a laser. Oh. And like a Galvo servo, right? Okay, so I thought that the powder printers would spread a layer of powder, and then a laser would come by and center just those areas, and then it uh, yes, would spread they, another yes. layer of it. Yes. You're just well, saying that's old. About resin. Yes. I'm talking about the resin printers, though, that everyone can go, like the Elegoos people can go buy on Amazon. They still use the terminology SLS. I'm, look, I'm going to split hairs here. I thought those were called SLA. Uh, maybe. Still has laser in the title, though. Yeah, it's SLA. Not SLS. But it still has L in it. <laughs> well, it's a completely different L. <laughs> now, okay, when it comes to, this is still me not knowing a whole lot about 3D printing. Yeah, so resin printers are SLA, and it just they just say stereolithography. Yeah, they don't actually say what. But I don't, I don't know why that's SLA. I mean, there is an S, there is an L, and there's an A in stereolithography, but... That would be like really weird capitalization. Yeah, okay, so SLS, selective laser centering, is different than SLA, stereolithography. Yes, Different yes. in terms of the actual process. Oh, okay, I see I see what you're going to... But previously, okay, so SLA, like resin printers, did used to have a laser that shot from beneath... Yes. ...basically up to the build platform. SLS fuses polymers from above, effectively, and drops the bed. Yes. And then they figured out that putting panels down there, a uh, LCD panel was way cheaper and faster. <laughs> well, okay, so resin is UV sensitive. Yes. So the, the mechanism is the actual light. Yeah. Whereas with SLS, you're actually sintering the metal. So the mechanism Correct. that it actually fuses things is slightly different. When, 
Okay, now we're going way off the, the rails. When did... Yeah, I can't really find what the A in SLA stands for because definitely the S is stereo and the L is logography. Lithography, yeah. What's A? The lith and the ography are L and A. <laughs> yeah. If it, I, it could be. Oh, maybe SLA is like a trademark term. But everyone like markets their printers with that. So that can't be a trademark. There's a Wikipedia page for stereolithography. And the very first word is stereolithography. And then it says SLA right next to it. So, okay, that's that's just I like my acronyms to mean something to mean something <laughs> and not just be forced like this one's just being forced. That's not an acronym at that point. Yeah, it's an abbreviation and a weird one. Yeah, it's a weird abbreviation. Although someone out there probably knows. Maybe it's like Latin or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, regardless. So you picked up a Bamboo X1 Carbon. I actually have a question about that because it has a head changer on it. You got that yeah. uh, with it, the, the, the separate color. It's one? not a head changer like a CNC. I'm sorry, the color changer. Yeah, it just like feeds different material into the like pipeline, so to speak. Right. So the thing about that is with a one cartridge 3D printer, it's just mm. pushing material into the head and melting it at the tip, right? Yeah. If you want to exchange material to change color or or material, you have to back the material out of the line, no. feed a new one, right? That's not how it works. Or is it does it mix right at the nozzle? No. So what it does is it just basically breaks the filament, right? Okay. And then the next one comes in right after the other one and it will extrude out into a waste bin basically and purge the nozzle out. So on your print, let's say it does one material, yeah. it finishes that material, it now needs to push the next material out. Yes. So so it finishes one, it goes to the waste bin, it purges the nozzle, yes. goes back to where that happened and then squirts keeps and going. Keeps going. Yep. How do you not have a discontinuity right at that point? Because you're... Or, or do you? You don't. How additive 3D printing works is when that extrusion comes out, it's actually slightly melting the previous layer too. So they bond. Oh, okay. So it just kind of mashes it all together. Yeah. Okay. Because I've seen some multicolored 3D printers mm -hmm. and they, they seem to do a pretty dang good job. I would think that switching colors, though, is a fairly lengthy process, so you don't want to do it very often. Yeah. Again, I'm not really going to be using it to change colors. It's going to be changing materials without having to reload it. Right. Changing materials between prints. You can load up four materials and just be like, today I want this flavor and tomorrow yeah, that. Yeah, I want to print polycarbonate. Oh, we don't know exactly if this bracket's going to work or this fixturing's going to work. So let's print it out PLA because we just need to test it really fast. But then be like, oh, this shape works really good. Let's actually print it in polycarbonate now, which takes longer, higher temperature, et cetera, and more expensive. And so you print in polycarbonate for your final and be like, okay, this will last for like ever on the line now. Mm -hmm. It just won't wear out. When does it arrive? Sometime next week. Cool. Actually, it might be this Friday too. It's three to seven days and probably ship tomorrow. Parker's going to be printing toys all day long. <laughs> no, it's probably going to be printing like a fixture right away. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. Cool. 
So yes, on to the next topic, which is U.S. Commerce issues final national security guardrails. Interesting, like that terminology, guardrails on chips incentives. So this is for the Chips Act. That's you know the ninety billion dollars or whatever, how big it is. Numbers don't matter. <laughs> at, at some point, they're just so big. Yeah, they're just the number is so big it doesn't matter. Basically, what this new guardrail, it's such, that's a weird term to call it. Basically, it's a new rule on these acts to prevent companies from getting the investments and then using that investment to do research and then that research ending up in countries of concern. <laughs> There's a lot of political... I'll let y'all figure out what that means. Yeah, guardrails, countries of concern, like... They're doctoring some words here to make it sound nice. Yeah. Basically, what they're saying is if you accept money through the CHIPS Act, you can't do certain things with your company, i.e. send research or build in these countries of concern. Right. You can't just funnel it to the countries of concern because money is fungible, meaning Money is money. You can just pay for whatever you're doing over there with it. So I guess these guardrails are there to prevent that. Yeah. I wonder how that's going to be enforced, though. Yeah, I don't know either. But basically, like, if you take money, you can't expand your manufacturing or push research and that kind of stuff for up to 10 years in these countries of concern. Which is interesting. It's also going to cover licensing efforts. Oh, really? Yeah, that's very interesting. So basically, if you do R&D work for like a new microcontroller core, let's say if ARM, this is an example, if ARM took money through the CHIPS Act to build a new microcontroller architecture, under this, they wouldn't be able to license that out to countries of concern. Hmm. Now, this is coming after the fact. So some of these companies have already received this money. So... I wonder how that pans out. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think they've given out a lot of it yet. Like, it got passed, and they're trying to figure out how to spend the... Who actually gets ...number it? of money that we can't even imagine how big it is. Yeah. And the countries of concern are China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea. I think there's more on that list, but that's, like, what this article covers. Oh, it includes those four. Includes those four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the big one that stuck out with me was the licensing efforts. Because it totally makes sense, like, don't take this money and build a factory in, like, China, for example. Or design a new chip and then, or, like, push this money over there to design new chips. Licensing efforts is really interesting. It prevents basically, like, a loophole where, like, you make a shell company somewhere else and then license the tech that you developed under this to there. Perhaps I'm just a bit skeptical about this, but I wonder if they're implementing this due to um, getting some new information about how this money might be used. You know, perhaps I'm just spitballing here, but perhaps people were taking it and potentially planning to use it to do a portion of the work in America such that they could have the flag of, this is made in America, we're, we're participating in it, we've got a bunch of money to do it, and then still ship things overseas to finish or post-process or do whatever. It's interesting that you brought that up because TSMC, their new plant in Arizona, has to ship the wafers to Taiwan to be finished. 
Right, because their packaging plant is in Taiwan. Yeah, there's no packaging plant in Arizona yet. Or I don't know if there's a plan to Right, be. right. So it's just pure dye. Yeah. Yeah, there was an article recently about that that was discussing that this massive plant that is supposed to build these fantastic chips, still, you don't actually get a finalized chip from this one facility. Yeah. I don't think this guardrail... <laughs> So silly of a term. Well, technically, I mean, unless uh, Taiwan is on the the countries of concern list, I don't think Taiwan is. I don't think it is. Then, then this doesn't preclude that, right? No, no, no. But I don't think this guardrail prevents that problem. And this is more like Intel being like, so Intel's like, oh, this is just me guessing what happened. Be like Intel. Or let's not even use Intel. Let's use Company A is a multi giant billion dollar company that builds high-end chips and they're like oh we were planning on building a new facility in america but now we can take these funding and we can just build take that money that we were going to spend here and build a facility in china or in russia or in iran or in north korea for example right right that's probably what it's more for is to be like hey if you're going to take this money you we're going to basically expect you to only be working for the united states which makes sense. I think this comes back to when we were talking with the PCBAA yeah. person where I brought up the whole, you know, if we're going to spend our taxpaying money on stuff, we should at least spend it on ourselves. Yeah. Which is what this is trying to do. I think so. But like I said, my question before, how is this enforced? How do they know that every dollar given to them flows back to America? Or it's spent in America. I mean, they probably audited it. Was that part of the original Chips Act, though? I mean, that's the thing is they haven't even doled out all the information so they're, or all the money yet. Like, I don't think they've even doled out like 10% of it yet. So basically, I think the Chips Act was like, we want to spend this big amount of money on all this stuff. And then that got approved. Like the initial basic budget got approved. And now they have to figure out how to spend it. I don't know this website I'm on but it is information about the CHIPS Act, and it does state that applicants must provide audited financial statements. Okay, yeah, that makes total sense then. It's David, by the way. David was the, for the PCBAA. That was, by the way, if someone wants to go back and listen to it, that's Chips Can't Dip. That was, that was episode... Two months ago? 388. That's where we talked about the PCBA Act, AA, and... We were talking about like taxpayer dollars and that kind of stuff. Mm. So go listen to that. That was a really good conversation we had about what the CHIPS Act is. and Yeah, that was the continuation of the CHIPS Act. That was the CHIPS Act turning into the Assemblies Act, basically. Yeah, well, the CHIP Act was its own thing. This is its, also its own thing. Right. Which I wonder where that is at right now. PCB. It was, it just became a bill to be put forward when we had David on. Well, knowing how fast things move, it's probably still just hanging around somewhere. Well, the CHIPS Act happened really quickly. Funny enough, I think Twitter was actually the best place to get information about this. Where was I getting that with that? Oh, yes. The whole, if we're going to spend a lot of money on our taxes, it should help us, not them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, these guardrails are attempting to make that happen attempting that's what it looks like to me uh, and honestly it's like it makes sense 
It makes sense. I wouldn't be surprised. I don't know how any of this stuff works at that level. It's that's next level kind of stuff, but it wouldn't surprise me if this is a very normal thing where a bill gets passed money's out there now. And now they kind of have to figure out like, Oh, well, okay, it's ready now. How do we work this all out? And then new stipulations and rules get applied after the bill gets yeah well it's it's also like the chicken and egg problem first of all there's like no money at all to like even do that administration part of sending out this money or or, Mm. or going through applications right so you have to in this ginormous 90 billion dollar bill or whatever it was or budget basically is that so that okay now we when that finally get passed it's like okay now we have to hire a bunch of people to set up the office to make this thing work. Yeah, right, right. But yeah, again, and then coming up with the rules of like, how does the money get spent? I actually had a, a, a roommate buddy of mine who was part of some organization that claimed to be for climate change, basically an activist for, for climate change stuff. Wait, for climate change? <laughs> yeah, well, I've, the funny thing was, they went around and raised money. I don't remember exactly what it was for or why they were raising money, but effectively this organization raised just enough money to keep them afloat and pay their people and pay their bills. So it was just self-perpetuating, but never actually did a thing about anything. And they had run this way for like years and it was just all basically a scam, the whole thing. Not a scam, but like at the end of the day, like the people who were were donating money thought it was going towards a cause, but it just went towards paying the light bill and paying the employees. And that's it. Perpetuating the organization. Yeah, yeah. That's frustrating. So uh, it kind of makes me wonder how much of the CHIPS Act gets consumed with that kind of. By the machine. Yeah, by the machine itself. Yeah, that would be very interesting to know. Probably more than it should. Uh, it'd probably make us sad if we, if we actually knew. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably. It'd be very interesting from a... Man, this still just boils down to, like... We talked about TSMC was complaining about not being able to hire enough people. Man, we're just going to need more people to even fill out all those jobs. I mean, something like... What was it? 60,000 600 wasn't it yeah no 600,000 engineering jobs like high level engineering jobs too yeah that's a lot of people I mean we've mentioned it before but that's really exciting as in oh yeah the next generation of double e's like you could just be like hey there's an enormous amount of work available for you guys and I'm sure it's jobs at all levels right I'm sure there's tons of entry level it's all levels and all different disciplines engineering disciplines it's not just electrical engineers you need mechanical you need chemical you need specialized optical engineers heck you need all of them systems in in industrial at the same time yeah yeah so it's a very good time to be an engineer in america right now a couple of weeks ago i looked it up it's like the unemployment rate for if you have an engineering degree in america is sub two percent right now No way. Yeah, it's something ridiculous. Now, granted, that's also, if we want to get slightly political about it, that's also like the government's way of determining unemployment, which is you're not looking for work, even though you're unemployed. So, Yeah, apparently just 
a quick Google search is showing that the long-term average unemployment rate for engineers is 3.08, which if, if I remember right, that's on par. That's general unemployment rate. That's like a good number for, for unemployment rate, but for engineering in the last, in the recent past is like 1.9%. That's crazy. Yeah. That's low. Yeah. Sub 2%. So it's one of those, if you're an engineer out there, the jobs are there and everyone that's a student, it's good times. Good times. Especially if you get into the chip industry. You know, okay. This is on, but off topic at the same time. I was told one thing, but not the whole truth. I think I was told that engineers coming out of college make good money. That's just, I can't tell you how many times I've, I heard that. Like, yeah, you, you're a kid coming out of college. You make good money. The one thing that they don't tell you is there's a little bit of a cap to that unless you choose to go to management. So engineers, I feel like they kind of raise the ranks and get to a higher salary pretty quickly. But then like it just stops after some point unless you are willing to make the jump into middle management. And I'm sure that's true of other degrees as well, too. But that's true. I don't know if I was told that truth. And that's almost why every job is that way. Even managers are that way, too. The one thing I can tell people is if you want to push your salary cap is you have to become more flexible, I guess. Uh, learn programming. Learn another skill set. Become more well-rounded, and thus you can do more things, and you become more valuable. And uh, with sub-2% employment, Go shop around. Well, yeah, but I guess what I'm getting at is I can think of right now other professions that their salary cap for the actual thing that they studied is considerably higher than engineering or electrical engineering. I mean, yeah, you were actually told the truth. It's good money. It's not the most money, though. Well, yeah, and, and that's not necessarily – my goal in life is not to make the most money I possibly can. So I'm not – I didn't gear myself in that direction. But it's just been my experience that, you know, right out of school, you make good money for your age, and that increases to a particular point and kind of plateaus off unless you go to management. There are other professions that – start off at good money and their plateau is higher than engineering. And you can stay as an engineer, engineer, or you could stay as that profession for longer and continue to make more money. As opposed to with engineers, I've found that if you want to continue the rung of making more money, you have to move into management sooner than other professions. I think you're selling those other disciplines or degrees short. Maybe. Because usually, like, let's say management positions. Typically, when a manager gets more experience, they are better managers. Yeah. Thus, they're worth more money. I'm not selling them short. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that. But the thing is, what you're saying with engineers is it caps. It kind of doesn't, though. As long as you keep expanding your skill set, you can garner more money. I don't know. I, I kind of disagree with that. And then that has not been my experience in the past. Like, let's say you want to be, let's say like your passion is just PCB layout and you want to be a PCB layout for 35 years and then retire. 
your salary will not just continue to increase. Okay, sure. It will plateau. But again, that's not what I said. And on the flip side, let's say, let's pick the manager. You want to be the manager of five people and that's it. And you just want to be a manager of a team and that's it for the rest of your life. Your salary is not going to go up. Uh, correct. Correct. Yes. But what I'm, what I'm saying is to get to the next level, you can't just do more boards. Mean that you have to become a manager with a bigger skill set and handle more people. Yeah. That's how your salary goes up as a manager. Not you do the same thing for 35 years. Correct. The only point I'm making is I'm aware of other professions where you can continue to march forward and learn more about like being a board layout guy and your salary can continue to rise throughout the years. I'm engineering. I've found has a cap and it's easy to reach that cap moderately quickly. I wish I knew what these like board layout that just continually rises jobs then. Well, I mean, I've seen it with friends in uh, software engineering. Uh, you can continue to be a software engineer and, uh, and usually those software engineers move into more management positions on their teams or they become leaders of their own projects. They're not just a software engineer or developer working on a team. They are rising in their ranks, so to speak, and becoming senior levels. And they're not just writing code at this point. They're architecting out the systems. They're doing more high-level stuff instead of running traces on the boards. Sure, sure. I, You know, I think we're actually saying the same thing here. Yeah. I've never seen a someone who just wants to write Python, and that is it. And all they want to do is get the requirements of what they need to write and then write it in Python have exponential or growing salaries. That's not a thing. I agree. But what I'm saying is that I've seen those kinds of positions have a higher cap of what that salary is than engine, than double E engineers, than mechanical engineers. It, it, that has been my experience. Well, there is a way to fix that, Stephen. What's that? The unemployment rate for engineers is sub 2%. Yeah, <laughs> self-correct it all. You can self-correct it. Yeah. Man, we got way off the rails in that. That's, yeah, yeah. I don't even know how we got there. Uh, something with hiring uh, like 600,000. Oh, yeah, unemployment rate. That still baffles then... my brain that we need that many engineers. And they're just not out there. So we need like matrix vats and like test tube tons of engineers like right now like the clone wars in star wars accelerated growth <laughs> whenever i went into double e at at texas a&m i went in my graduating class or my starting class not my graduating my starting class was over 2000 students and that's freshman 2000 i graduated with a very small number of that 2000 so think about how you supply 600,000 jobs. Like universities need to be cranking out engineers to, yeah. to meet these numbers. University of Texas, it's number 10. So basically they're like the number one public electrical engineering college in America. When I graduated, it was like 10 electrical engineers that graduated my class. Only 10? Yeah. I, I also graduated in December. So it was like an off season. Oh, okay. That makes sense. 
I think only like 400 engineers graduated that December. Like out of all the colleges. So I wonder how many EEs. I think it was 77 at A&M. It was my graduating class. So 77? Yeah. And did you graduate like a normal? Yeah. Yeah. I graduated when. Like the spring? Is spring. Yeah. Let's call it 100 for easy math, right? How many universities do we need? 6,000 universities. I was off off bit. Okay, so so a website I'm on said that between the year of 2020 and 2021, Texas awarded 2,387 electrical engineering degrees. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if that also includes masters and PhDs and and all of that. But okay, so 2,400. The state of Texas? Yes, the state of Texas. Okay, that makes more sense because I'm like, there was not even 2,000 people in my building yeah the state yeah school. sorry the state of of texas in okay. one year pumped out 2400 double e's okay so how many states of texas do we need then <laughs> <laughs> yeah what what it boils down to well, no, we need 250 the, texas <laughs> yeah the, but and and what it boils down to is there's going to be so much competition so in other words like Expand this out and just think about it. If you're going into college now and like, oh, should it be a double E? Like, there's going to be really good jobs available. Well, and again, though, we don't, you don't have to be a double E to get True. into this chips act pie. Actually, can you look up how many just engineering in general? Uh, like, how many engineers yearly does like the United States like graduate with a BS? Okay, how many engineers graduate each year in the U.S.? Uh, various articles in popular media, speeches by policymakers, and reports to Congress have stated that the United States guarantees 70,000 undergraduate engineers every year. China does 600,000 every year. Yeah, yeah, I just read that. That's <laughs> Again, that puts so much more o- – how – China's putting so much more onus on engineering yeah. to grow their economy than we are. Somebody found uh, data from 2014 that says that 99,000 engineering students graduated with a bachelor's degree. In so we need, so technically in eight and a half years, we will have, if all these engineer, if all the engineers that graduated went to work into chip fab, it'd be eight and a half years. Yeah. We just need to, we need to increase that number. That's just about it. And as you said, it's good money, but we can make that money better. I wonder overall, what's the success rate of, okay, so 70,000 undergraduates get an engineering degree every year. How many attempted an engineering degree? Yeah, I don't know. You know, is it 700,000 attempt an engineering degree and one out of 10 make it? I know for electrical, at least at UT has, is the largest dropout rate and transfer rate out of that college. <laughs> that's funny, actually. I was the only person that transferred into electrical engineering that semester I transferred in. One person. The dean was just like, yeah, you're in. <laughs> There's you know, nothing, no formal anything. He's like, yeah, you're in. <laughs> Dude, I did the same thing. I don't I don't know if I was the only one, but I remember going and seeing the dean and, uh, and transferring to double E. And the guy looked at me and goes, are you sure? <laughs> like, <laughs> you sure? Yeah, that's why I'm here. No, they were like, you're in. They didn't question or anything, but they're like, yeah, you're in. Where's that dusty paperwork out the go find? Because we haven't used it in, in years. 
But again, doesn't have to be electrical engineering. Chip manufacturing uses all disciplines. So yeah, let's get to it. I'm on a website that shows dropout rates for degrees mm-hmm. and engineering has the highest dropout rate. Yeah. And it's between, what are they saying? 40 and 60%. I do think it would be less if they didn't teach math like they do. You mean in the beginning or just in general? In general. Uh, we've talked about this many times where they, knowing the theory of how math works is great. It's very important. But they do teach it like they teach you cursive in middle school. They teach it like you are going to be doing this stuff by hand all the time. And thus you have to learn it that way. The moment you get out in the real world, they're like, your boss, if you do a derivative by hand, your boss is going to tell you you're stupid. <laughs> your boss is going to be like, why didn't you write a, a program or use Excel basically to solve that problem? In every place I've ever worked, I've only worked with one person who treats their job basically like it was in academia, where everything they do is like a full on paper with like derivatives or, or derivations of <laughs> everything. And like, proof. yeah, no, I swear to God, this guy is incredible. Yeah. But at the same time, like, I, I, I <laughs> it's funny, this person did a whole paper write up on this thing that's really professional, looks fantastic. And it, he was the first to do it on the team, and the rest of the team has to do write-ups as well. One guy leans over to me. He's like, I'm not doing any of that. He's like, I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing my project a completely different. Like, <laughs> <laughs> just be like, and, and that's, not a not dig, that. that's not a dig on the guy who, likes, who does everything academically. That was just more like, it's not necessary. That guy's just really good at it, and he likes doing it that way, and mm-hmm. he can knock it out so, super fast. Again, Learn how to do it by hand. Learn how the theory behind it so you can recognize how the math works, basically. And then what they really should do is once you do that is go, hey, now let's write some code that does that same stuff. And now you know enough of the theory where you can be like, you can, your brain goes, oh, yeah, that answer makes sense at the end. You see, okay, you're approaching it in such an engineering way, in such a practical way. I think the the kind of mentality that mathematicians take is, well, we've taught you the hard part, the the part to think. The execution of writing code, that's that's an exercise for you to do. Right? Yeah, but no one does that. I but I, what I'm saying is I think that's the mindset that you get. Yeah, but from. the thing is that theory part I had almost one entire semester that was just like really like the middle chunk of calculus, which is like learning derivatives. It was like one whole semester. And I'm like, we really could have just done that for one month and then spent the rest of the months like teaching a computer to do derivatives for us in the correct way, which would have been way more useful and probably less people would drop out. Yeah, you never know. It would not surprise me if they do things in a seemingly difficult way just to see if people will hang around. I think they do that to get people to drop out. Yeah, it would not surprise me at all. Which can't, I'll put it this way, if these countries of concern are doing basically 10x us in amount of engineers they're making, there's something wrong with how we are training engineers then. If we are forcing one out of every, let's just say, how, what was the dropout rate? 40 to 40 to 60%, something like that. So half, half. 
Yeah, basically half. All right. If we're forcing one out of every two people to drop out, there's something fundamentally wrong of how we educate engineers. Well, it also begs the question, does that person know what they're getting into? Uh, in other words, are people dropping out because they can't deal with it or are they dropping out because it wasn't what was sold to them? You know, would the dropout rate be much lower if people knew ahead of time what they were getting into? Maybe. I just remember in electrical engineering, most people dropping out because of like the math classes. Yeah. Not because of the engineering classes. AM, like there was so little differentiation between the engineering and math. They were not well at UT, it's when you took a math class, you took it in the math building with mathematicians. So like your class was not engineers, it was with other mathematicians that were going to school to get a math degree, not an engineering degree. Yeah. Maybe that's where my bias is coming from and and all this. I didn't have like math for engineers. It was literally the math class. <laughs> oh, no, it was the same in A&M. I, well, okay, so my very last math class I took was taught by the math department, but they were required to gear it towards engineers. So it basically what they did was they replaced a lot of the really ridiculously rigorous proofs with a project. And our project, we had to make something that proved what the math was doing. Oh, I wish I had that. Yeah. I made a guitar tuner. I had a whole class on proofs. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. Well, well, the, the funny thing was the rest of this entire class was all proofs. So it was like we substituted one really nasty proof with a project. Yeah. There's a, there's a problem when 50% are dropping out. We need to, I think, take a look at that, too. And that's also not our jobs, though. Our jobs are to hire these people. Yeah, but well, on this podcast, our our job is also to educate and uh, and let people know. So so you know, true, listen true. to our podcast and listen to what we do. And uh, if that excites you, then you know, going through the hardship of college might be worth it. I mean, I I think it's for me, it was worth it. I think it just can be done a way better way that prepares engineers better for the workforce and we can do it in a way that we can get more engineers into the workforce that will be just as good as their jobs as we are, but they didn't have to do all the, I don't want to say do all the crap. It's just, there's a lot of extra stuff that probably engineers don't really need to do. I don't know. Like, cause they really, at least at at university of Texas, it's kind of, it honestly felt like how it feels in high school in America where high school in America is not to get you ready for the world. It's college prep. Which I think is kind of crappy. Yeah, it's, it's really crappy. Yeah. I think a lot of people can agree with that statement, though. If you disagree, argue against me in our Slack channel, macfred.com <laughs> slash Slack. It's really college prep where a lot of these math classes I was taking and a lot of, actually not all of them, but some of the EE classes really felt like graduate school prep. Like they're teaching you all this like academic stuff, academia ways of doing stuff, and then expecting that you would go into graduate school. Yeah, ivory tower engineering kind of stuff. Yeah. And maybe that might not be the right way to do it. Maybe having where if you're in your senior year, you can go, hey, I want to go into graduate school. I should probably go take these more 
theory-based math classes and theory-based, heavily more theory-based EE classes to get myself up to speed for the graduate stuff instead of doing it, instead of front-loading it the other way. Because like we talk about this on the podcast lots of times, our junior and senior year were probably the best years in school because it was all, it was more labs, more practical, more hands-on, et cetera, et cetera. Well, um, I, I honestly, I would say the, the best thing about those two years was that my professors were not actively trying to get me to fail. Yeah, that too. Like, yeah, not they, actively they would work with me fail. and and like they treated me like a human being where I'd go to yes. class to like their lab hours and we would just like talk about things and like figure things out together. And they treated me like, oh, I had made it. I was I was worthy of their time, you know, because you suffered for two years. Yeah, because the first two years they just actively hated me. <laughs> yeah. Again, which is the wrong mentality to take. I agree. So actually, yeah, so that 40 to 50% dropout rate is probably the first two semesters. Yeah. And it probably drops to like 4% after that. Yeah. And I think those kind of, because a lot, at least at UT, a lot of those people go into software development, basically. And they're clearly able to design and build things and work with technology. I think we just have to tweak stuff a bit. And we can get that 70K number to 140K. Remember my College of uh, Average Joe's idea? We need the College, yeah, college of Average Joe Engineers. Yes. And that, that, honestly, that sounds like what you want out of an engineering school. Yeah, and again, it doesn't have to be a radically different change. It, there's just slight tweaks we have has to be done. Again, this is not a math is dumb thing at all. This is, you need to have a good understanding of math, but having a good application of it and understanding how math is used in like real life is way more important. I think you see mathematics as a tool to use to accomplish something. I mean, uh, whereas what else is uh, it for? <laughs> well, you know, actually funny enough, I've had this kind of conversation with someone at a, at a previous job, like take a, take like a packing algorithm for example, like mm -hmm. how do you efficiently, how do you make an algorithm that efficiently uses space inside of a box? Like what Amazon, well, actually Amazon's not great. Because <laughs> you get a, a giant box with a little box inside of it, right? But but let's say, let's say you needed an algorithm to prove that you can efficiently use the space inside of a box. Yeah. So the mathematician thinks really, really hard about how do I craft this algorithm, but they're not the one who's like writing the software that says, put this over here and put that over there. And that's the most, they're the guy up front that is proving that you can write an algorithm that best utilizes yes. space within a box. So, so like, that's an example of like, it's not directly useful. It's not like you, the but, end of the but, mathematician's job is the box filled with stuff. They're a mathematician. They're not an electrical engineer. <laughs> True. But I think that the way of thinking overlaps. Oh yeah. I, I mean, I agree with that, but there's a fundamental problem with how we teach engineering in the United States, I think as well. Hmm. It stems from, it being graduate prep, like how high school is college prep. Do you think graduate prep is just PhD prep? Yeah, that, that's what I'm saying. PhD is graduate school. It's just always upwards is what you're saying. Yeah, it's always upwards. Mm. And then PhD is uh, tenure prep. How about that? 
<laughs> to, to, to become a professor such that you can complete the cycle and complete the cycle. And teach the next series. Yeah. Maybe it's all just a giant game. Yeah, it could be. So next week we might have a guest, but if we don't have a guest, we will just do our personal project updates unless something radically changes in our electrical engineering world in next week. That sounds good. 60,000 engineers graduate next week. Yeah, and then like that unemployment number shoots through the roof. <laughs> <laughs> There's not enough jobs. Not enough jobs. So that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dolman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our podcast and listening to it as well, because you got to the end. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Steve and I know. Tweet us at MacRab or at Longhorn Engineer or at Analog ENG or email us at podcast at macrab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. You can find it at macrab.com slash Slack. 